the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My uh, my guest this hour has um, holds a, a Master of Arts in Teaching degree from Johns Hopkins and a Doctor of Education from Columbia. He has a book that we're going to talk about a little bit called A... Um, Mirror for Americans, what the East Asian experience tells us about teaching students who excel. Um, And maybe we'll dig into teaching students who don't excel. But we're going to talk with uh, the author of that book, and um, his name is Cornelius Grove. He joins me by phone. Cornelius, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Tom. I'm very happy to be invited onto your show, and greetings to all your listeners in the Flint, Michigan area. I'm speaking to you from Brooklyn, New York. Ah, good old Brooklyn. Um, and but you <laughs> don't, but you don't sound like someone from Brooklyn. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's very sharp of you. I'm not originally from Brooklyn. Um, I'm originally from the uh, Amish country in Pennsylvania. I wasn't raised Amish, but. Uh, uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, Lancaster County. You may have heard of Lancaster County, but I, my most of my formative years, uh, elementary, junior high, and high school were spent in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I bet that's what you hear. Well, a- actually, I, I I couldn't help wondering as you were talking about Lancaster uh, County and um, and then and then off to. Uh, Chattanooga and then yeah. Brooklyn, how that led you to an interest in how East Asians are teaching <laughs> students? Uh, well, uh, let's see. I, I think for this program, I need to condense that story quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I graduated from Johns Hopkins, and um, let's see and then i i got a bachelor's from john hopkins and then a master of arts in teaching i i taught high school for uh, i guess four years in white plains new york and then i very much wanted to 
write. I I, I like to write. I like to write uh, expository prose, non uh, nonfiction prose, and I got a job in an educational publishing house in New York. Uh, but another thing I always wanted to do was travel. So my uh, English wife and I spent two years traveling in uh, Europe and Africa. And uh, when we came back, that's when I went back to John's, uh, to uh, Columbia University here in New York and got a doctorate in education. And um, so for that doctorate, of course, I had to do a, a dissertation. And since we had lived in Portugal for a year and I spoke Portuguese reasonably well, I, I would stop short of saying I was fluent, uh, but I certainly could carry on an extended conversation. I decided to do a a doctorate uh, project looking at the adaptation and adjustment problems of immigrant Portuguese students in the United States. I wasn't interested in their learning English. They all have to do that. It has its difficulties, of course. I was far more interested in their learning the culture of the United States, the values, the behaviors, and how the... So I was looking at young people who had come from, uh, as immigrants with their parents, and came into American secondary schools, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, and up, because they had had their education up to that point in Portugal. And they came into American schools, and things were very, very different. Uh, very interesting, I, I found. And that interest that I developed in, in doing that dissertation always stayed with me. I don't know to what extent you want me to go on to my subsequent career, but if we skip ahead a number of decades, uh, I did have an opportunity. I mean, I, I'm not a full-time scholar, um, I, I have no association with a university, although in the past I have had. And I decided what I wanted to do was to follow up on this interest I had developed <clears throat> excuse me, in, in um, the cross-cultural challenges of teachers when teachers and students are from different cultural backgrounds. And along the way, I had had the opportunity to live and work in China. I had gone to China to a university in Beijing as a, as a so-called um, foreign expert. That's what they call them. I was a foreign <laughs> expert. And uh, everybody is a foreign expert, regardless of how much expertise they have. Um, and that, that was fascinating, too. So I had a pretty good understanding of China when I came back. And uh, long story short, eventually I decided to uh, have a look uh, at... Um, the cross-cultural differences between Chinese education and, by extension, East Asian ed education, adding Japan, Taiwan, and even Korea, uh, with the United States. And uh, let me let me stop now. But I'm, I could get into uh, no. I've 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 got a question that I hope will will bridge some of that. Um, okay. Because you used a phrase, uh, Cornelius, that, that made my ears perk up when you talked about these uh, Portuguese uh, students learning American culture and values. Right. 
How do you define American culture and values? Um, and and well, are those changing? Well, uh, I'm sorry, what was the last part you said? And, and they are changing? And are they changing? Well, any culture will very gradually change, yes. But cultures change at a very slow rate. Remember that when we're talking about culture, we're not talking about whether or not people wear blue jeans, uh, which is considered to be from Americans. Here in the United States, some people, when they say goodbye to somebody, they'll say ciao, which is Italian. So this, this, is, not, <laughs> this is not really culture. This is, you know, pop, you might say it's popular culture. I'm basically an interculturalist. My doctorate is in intercultural communication, and the intercultural field is very, very closely allied with anthropology. And we're looking much deeper at, at pe people's beliefs, their basic assumptions about life and work and children and love and time and, you know, uh, all sorts of very basic things like that. And we're looking at their values and how their values um, lead to their behaviors. So values are, are preferences for things to be one way instead of another way. And so people are guided by their values in, into, into certain behaviors or avoiding certain behaviors. So th there's, a, there's a pretty good baseline here in the United States. Of course, it changes very gradually. And I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm particularly involved in education. And uh, there are certain pretty standard characteristics of American education in our era. And they, they definitely have changed since the uh, late 1900s and early, uh, I should say the late 1800s and early 1900s. Over the past 100 years, there are definitely been changes, but I'm, I'm not so much interested in documenting those changes as I am about understanding uh, what the characteristics of American education are now and how those differ from the characteristics of East Asian education and what we can learn from that. And it's very important that we look for an opportunity to learn from that because East Asian students on the international comparative tests, without exception, have always scored at or near the top of all the nations involved in the international comparative test. Americans have always been in the middle or sometimes even below the middle. It has never been different over 50 years. So that's something that requires explanation, and that's what particularly drew me to this subject, and and obviously led to this uh, led to this book, um, and and I want to talk some more about that. What the what the differences are between the East Asian experience and um, and and the American experience when it comes right. to education. Mm -hmm. Now, I should throw in here that, uh, yes, we're here to talk today about my most recent book, A Mirror for Americans, but I think we're soon going to have an opportunity to mention what I call its sister book or its sister volume, published three years ago by the same publisher. 
It's called The Drive to Learn, What the East Asian Experience Tells Us About Raising Students Who Excel. So the first book, 2017, is about raising students who excel. That's about what goes on in the home. This book is about teaching students who excel. That's what goes on in the school. In both cases, I'm looking at young children and and uh, early uh, education and primary school education. I'm not looking at, at the secondary or high school level. Is there... Um data on the the degree to which parents participate in their children's uh, development and education that is largely although not 100% the topic of my previous book the drive to learn let me say a little bit about the data that's available i have i just stated a little while ago that i'm quite interested in the fact that over 50 years of international comparative tests, East Asian students, without exception, have always uh, scored at or near the top of the rankings, and American students have been well below them every single time. So I'm not the only person who's interested in this, as you can probably imagine. When the international tests were first given, which was uh, just at the end of the 1960s, there, were, there, was, a, there was a group of scholars based in Hong Kong, uh, a, a group of Western scholars. They were mostly Australians. And when the first test scores came out, they saw that the East Asian students were at the top, and the American students were languishing in the middle. And they said, oh, my God, how can this be? Everybody knows that American schools are the best schools in the world, so how come? How, do, how can we explain this, that the East Asian students are at the top in math and science and whatever, they were, whatever else they were testing back in the late 1960s? So, you know, when a scholar encounters a question like that, what do they do? They do research. So these guys, right around 1970, started to do research, trying to figure out how come this anomaly, how come this paradox. And gradually they were joined by other scholars from other countries in the world. Eventually they were even joined by scholars from East Asia itself. Many of these people were anthropologists, um, they were sociologists, they were linguists, and so forth and so on. And from different countries, they came, kept coming to China, looking at everything that could possibly explain this very strange result, where the students from the best education system in the world consistently came in behind an education system that was thought to be basically dilapidated and using old-fashioned methods and on and on and on. So how, so... Cornelius, I hate to, I hate to interrupt, but can we put a comma there and pick this up? I have to go to a break. Okay. Um, Can you stand by for about four minutes and we'll dig down some more on this? No, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay. My guest is Cornelius, uh, Dr. Cornelius Grove, the author of um, 
a uh, book called A Mirror for Americans, and we're going to talk some more with Cornelius Ray. Hello, darling. This. this is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Tom Sumner Program is hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope back once again to tell you it's better to have Pepsodent flowing over your teeth now than to have water running under your bridge later. 
Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone. And Genesee Health Plan can help. I called and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, healthcare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together and together we'll get through it. The Tom Summer Program.com. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is Dr. Cornelius Grove, author of A Mirror for Americans What the East Asian Experience Tells Us About Teaching Students Who Excel. Cornelius, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. No problem. I'm glad to do it. Um, now, just before we went to break, we were talking about some of the data and, and how uh, American schools thought to be the best in the world, um, as opposed to East Asian schools thought to be sort of run down and, and lacking resources, um, were producing uh, students that were ranking differently than you would expect. Yes, uh, ranking differently than just about everyone would expect back in the 1970s. And then how did that turn to, um, I mean, what, what, if any, is the explanation? The well, first of all, the scholars who uh, looked into this, and we're talking about eventually hundreds of people who have produced now, I believe, around a thousand research reports. Those are contained in journal articles and books and monographs. These are all publicly available. Um, they, they not only looked at what was going on in schools, they also looked at what was going on in homes. And this is very important. Um, and they've had just tons of findings from both sources. By the way, in homes, once again, I say we're looking really at how the very youngest children are raised from birth up to about the time they go to school or in first grade. And in school, we're looking at, you know, preschool, kindergarten, and the early uh, elementary grades. The, when I first thought about writing about this and trying to help make sense for the general public of uh, this this research, I thought I'd just write one book. But when I got into the research itself and started reading widely, I realized that really the most important answer to the question, how come this has happened, is in the homes. And so the first book I wrote is about in what happens in the homes. And I think the question you asked me before the break was, do, to what extent do we have data on how East Asian parents spend time helping their kids academically. That's not exactly how you expressed it, but I think that was kind yeah. of the gist of it. Um, and there is that's this is one of the things that really has emerged, and I, which is discussed at length in the Drive to Learn, my my first book in this topic. Um, and um, Really, what it boils down to in both cases, however, by both cases I mean the home explanation and the school explanation, is that far more than for Americans, 
It is extremely important for people in East Asia, adults, parents, and families, grandparents, and so forth. It's extremely important, a top priority for them, that children do well in school, in classrooms, in academic subjects. This is really something that goes way, way back in their culture. I don't want to talk about this unless you want me to, but it goes back thousands of years. It eventually traces back to Confucius. Uh, the, the, the learning of academic knowledge is extremely important. And this comes out, these, this, that's a value, and that comes out in behavior in both the way parents deal with their children and teachers deal with their pupils. And and I I have to ask this because I've I've always suggested um, when I've been talking to people about the state of American schools and what resources are available and funding those are the conversations you typically hear and I always raise this issue of uh, of parent involvement yeah. and and is there something cultural about America that is perhaps less disciplined, maybe, than uh, our East Asian counterparts? I think the fundamental difference, if you, if you talk to most American parents, really the great majority, and you say, do you think it's important for your children to do well in their academic subjects in school? You know, um, math, science, history, um, language arts, and so forth. Uh, and almost everybody will say, oh, yes, yes, that, it is important. And you ask, a, you ask somebody, a, a parent from East Asia, let's say, oh, yes, it's very important. The difference is that for us, it's one of several things that are important. Now, I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm saying it's one of several we want our kids to be very socially well-adjusted. We want them to be well-rounded. That's a very big thing here, well-rounded. Not just academics, but, you know, sports and clubs and other, other things that young people do. And that's very important to us. And I'm not saying that that's bad. What I'm saying is that it's a big difference from China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and so forth, where... The really the top priority for the children is excellence, mastery of academic subjects, and that's that's based that's the fundamental explanation for everything that a thousand research reports have found. How does that work out in behavior? How does that make a difference in the home? How does that make a difference in the school classroom? And these differences are many, and the result is that they, they, the students there, they learn more, and they learn it faster, and they're better able to use it in practical ways, as witnessed by the international comparative tests, which are not the kind of tests that you can ace by memorizing things. In fact, uh, for example, on one of the main tests, uh, on math, uh, an American adult, a, a, um, an author of a book on, uh, you know, sort of a similar topic, was able to take <coughs> the inter one of the international comparative tests. She got a special dispensation and took the test. 
And she said, you know, it's it's really very practical. They want they don't want me to regurgitate knowledge that I learned in the classroom. They want to see how I can use it. And in the math test, she said, I didn't even have to have anything memorized when when it came time that when there was a question about the diameter of a circle, and you know uh, the the formula there for the diameter or, or the circumference rather is pi, which is three point one four one five nine. They just gave you that number. They didn't expect you to even have it memorized. They gave it to you and wanted to see how well you knew how to use it. So, um, so this. This seriousness of purpose, this single—I should say—this single-minded purpose in in East Asia is the fundamental explanation, the fundamental value difference. You know, you you mentioned um, parents, and I and I couldn't help thinking that if you asked American parents, they would all say that it's important to them that their children do well in school. Um, But yet, I I don't see parents doing what my father did, um, which was, uh, on on multiple occasions, taking his lunch hour off and coming home to go through multiplication flashcards with me at the dining room table. Um, You know, there just seems to be um, less of that kind of commitment. Uh, well, first of all, let me say that I congratulate you on your choice of father. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very good selection. Uh, I have done the same for, for our kids, who are all grown now. Um, yeah, uh, not only is there relatively little of this in the United States, but there's also a feeling in the United States that if you expect children to actually memorize something like the times tables, it will, it will wear them out, it will discourage them, it will make them hate math, and so forth and so on. And that's just so unfortunate, and you don't find this kind of thinking in East Asia. You just don't find it. It's taken as axiomatic that if you want to really... In, in, you know, as you get into fourth, fifth, sixth grades and on up through the secondary, uh, through high school, if you really want to ace math, you have to learn some very basic things and overlearn them so they are instantly available in your memory. And you don't have to waste time, you know, multiplying on your smartphone or, you know, whatever to get the answer. You just know the answer. Boom, you got it. And it's, we're not only talking about multiplication tables, but it's the best example. And most people, I, I have heard of classrooms, in, or I've heard the opinion expressed here that it, you really ought not to ask your children to do that kind of thing. And that's just so unfortunate, and that, that's the kind of thinking that leads to the outcome where on international comparative tests, East Asians always do better than American students. I have seen public relations campaigns uh, geared at inner cities around the country mm-hmm. encouraging people to learn how to read, mm-hmm. which is such a, such a basic fundamental yeah. to opening yeah. up all kinds of education. Absolutely. And, and yet the experience that, that you shared with your kids and that my dad shared with me um, 
that seemed normal to me. Yeah. And and you know that that's the way it should always be, and yet it's not. Is are the public relations campaigns we need about inspiring parents more than the students? Well, I think the public relations campaign that you described probably was trying to inspire or encourage parents to take a more active interest. And uh, I, you know, I would, I would applaud those. I don't have any problem with that. It's kind of unfortunate that we need to do that, but we have all different kinds of people living in this country, and um, and in some households reading or other academic uh, activities that could be described as academic just aren't very important. Um, and that's unfortunate for a whole bunch of reasons, and the reason we're talking about right now is that these kids uh, are behind as soon as they get to school on the first day. And and how do we... How do we change that? We can't just put "we're the best" on a bumper sticker, and <laughs> you know, and and uh, hope that everybody believes us. We've got to back that up somehow. How do yeah. we do that? I don't know. I honestly, I don't know, and I don't think that this research has the answer to that. These these behaviors, the behavior that drove your father, the behavior that I guess drove me with our three boys and and my wife as well. Um, you know, they come from a very deep set of values that are passed down from generation to generation. And when we're talking about adults who, who didn't grow up with that set of values received from their parents and their neighborhoods and their uh, kinfolk, uh, to change that in adulthood is difficult. I do think that there are people who did not come out of that that same set of values, who didn't value academics. Some some of them say, I'm not going to let this happen to my children. I am going to take school very seriously. I'm going to work with my kids and get them extra help and support them and work with them in every way I can. And these are this is great when this happens. I mean, it's wonderful. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's uh, somewhat isolated cases, but we hope that you know the kind of advertising campaigns you're talking about will will help to increase increase the number of parents who make that decision. You know, it's it's um, almost awkward to talk about because it it becomes kind of a politically incorrect stereotype to say. Well, you know, have the have the Asian kid figure it out, you know, um, and and I I I don't want to do that. But if there is clearly a, a a reason why those stereotypes tend to be true, um, we need to look at that more. Yeah, I I don't think. Uh, yes, I I agree, and everything that seems reasonable and and affordable uh i think should be done i don't know that the research that i did uh i mean my my research is for parents and teachers who do care who do place very high on their list of priorities their children's learning 
of academic subjects to mastery. For people who have that motivation for whatever reason, either because they were raised that way, they come out of that cultural tradition, or because they've made a conscious decision not to raise their kids the way they they themselves were raised, my books speak to, that's who my books speak to. And there are millions of these people, so, you know, we're not talking about a tiny minority here. Um, for the others, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't have any, I don't have any, um, no silver bullet. bullets. I don't have any <laughs> silver bullets. I, I'm sorry. Because I think that the motivation here, it, it just runs very, very deep. It, these are the kind of things that are learned from in infancy, in the first year, the second year, the third year, then the Catholic Church used to say, give me a child until he is seven, and his course is set in life. Well, that's about the time you go to first grade, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I, I read a lot of anthropology, and it's true in other cultures that have nothing to do with the Catholic Church as well. I, I just, I, I can't help thinking that it's it's interesting that the information that you looked at identifies different things than what we typically talk about and that is more money in the classroom yeah we have a lot of things that we like to talk about i would never oppose more money going to classrooms i don't think that's the answer i don't think that most of the reform the most of the reforms that are discussed these days are the answer um the the answer lies at the level of values and this needs to get translated into behavior in homes and schools let me give an example we i've been yeah, please. my my book that we're talking about is about schools and we've been talking more about homes well when i looked at the research coming out of east asia 50 years of research into school classrooms i found a lot of things and they're discussed in the book by the way my two books are actually quite short uh, one is 116 pages, the other is 126 pages. So we're not talking about big, thick books here. But uh, in in terms of what was found in East Asia, I think it boils down to this, that in the classroom, well, let, let me come at it a, another way. In this culture, in the last uh, decades, plural, there has been an enormous push to make classroom learning student-centered, a very big deal in this culture, student-centered learning. And if you have your nose in educational publications and journals and newsletters and so forth, you'll just see it all over the place. Well, in East Asia, they don't think about student-centered or teaching-centered. They're not interested in that. What happens in East Asia is that classroom classroom learning is knowledge-centered. It's about the knowledge. It's about the teachers very thoughtfully trying to help the kids grasp the connections and the, and the bases of the knowledge and getting them to build on that. And uh, believe me, in my book, we, we get into some of the ways that they do this. You can see it most clearly in mathematics. Um, and... Uh, the, the the fact that uh, different students have uh, different uh, 
creativity or that they need to express themselves or they have to uh, different what's uh, sometimes called learning styles. Just it doesn't enter into it. It's just not not a not a big thing in East Asia. The big thing is to ensure that the pupils understand and are able to master whatever it is they're supposed to be learning. And I know I'm not going into detail, but there is uh, quite a bit of detail about this in A Mirror for Americans. It, it, you can always fall back on read the book, <laughs> Cornelius. Um, just very quickly, because we only have about three and a half minutes left. Um, okay. Does uh, art and music play a role? Art and music? Yes, well, that's very interesting because art, I don't really get into music very much, but art is taught quite differently in Asia. Um, So, you know, that's, that's also different, and the result is that their children are far better able to draw certain things than our children. Now, once people get into the details here, some of them uh, might not uh, like what they see, but, you know, some people don't, some people might not like the fact that East Asians put an enormous amount of effort on, on children mastering academic subjects. But there are outcomes to these differences. And if we care about the outcomes, if we care about how well our children are able to use in practical daily life the what they learn in academic subjects and we see that those academic subjects are learned far better uh, on average than uh, in east asia than they are here then we say well how come this is and the answers are here uh at the at the level that's very compatible and uh, user friendly for ordinary folks, not scholars, not people with doctorates. Um, my my two books will say here. This is what it's all about. Uh, and and if you want to uh, learn from this, there there are certain things that you can do in at the level of the family. Uh, we're not out to change the culture. The culture isn't going to change. But at the level of the family, things can change. Dr. Cornelius Grove is uh, my guest. He is the author of a book called A Mirror for Americans, Um, What the East Asian Experience Tells Us About Teaching Students Who Excel. And this is uh, important information and uh, a very important subject and i appreciate you spending this time with me uh cornelius i always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work past present and future do you have a website i certainly do the the website for this book if you can remember if anybody any listener can remember a mirror for americans then they can remember the website it's a mirror for americans dot info now that's the that's the difference. It's dot info, not dot com or dot org or dot net. A mirror for Americans dot info. You'll find everything there. Well, Cornelius, thanks for spending this time with me. It's been a real pleasure. It's my pleasure, Tom. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. Take care. Once again, that was um, Dr. Cornelius Grove, and uh, the book is uh, called. 
A Mirror for Americans, What the East Asian Experience Tells Us About Teaching Students Who Excel. If you're listening to us on 92.1 FM WFOV, Our Voices Radio in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And then we'll be back with the final segment of today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips... Visit CDC. They say singing can help you remember things. So here's some tips for parents out there during these tough times. Number one. Make sure your kids wash their hands for 20 seconds after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside. Two. Virtual play dates. Social and physical distancing can help save lives. Three. Tell them they're safe and show your love and pride. Yes, we'll get through this together. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com. Call us at at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular 
regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. In the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
Against his head, pulled my trigger. Now he's dead. Mama, life had just begun, but now I've gone and thrown it all away. Mama, oh, didn't mean to make you cry. This time tomorrow, carry on, carry on, as if nothing really matters. Too late. My time has come. Sends shivers down my spine. Body's aching all the time. Goodbye, everybody. I've got to go. Got to leave you all behind and face the truth. Mama, oh. I don't want to die. I sometimes wish I. Never been born at all. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the fandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, Galileo, Galileo. I'm just a poor boy. Nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family. He's very distant from his conscious. 
Today's edition of the Tom Sumner program with William Shatner was kind of our queen for the day doing Bohemian Rhapsody in Schlocktober 2020. One of the new ones for this year. We'll have some more of the new ones this week as we ramp up toward uh, our final installment of Schlocktober 2020 coming up uh, this Friday in a special Halloween edition of the Tom Sumner program, which will also feature uh, our annual playing of War of the Worlds. Um, I want to say thanks to all the guests on the show today, specifically uh, Dr. Cornelius Grove for our conversation about his book, A Mirror for Americans, What the East Asian Experience Tells Us About Teaching Students Who Excel. Also want to say thanks to um, Murray Wadsworth, who shared his story about prostate cancer and uh, his book, uh, Prostate Cancer, Sheep or Wolf, and also David Ribeiro from the uh, American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, or ACEEE, which is a lot easier to say, talking about the uh, uh, survey that they did on uh, different cities and and who's uh, ranking best in terms of uh, making buildings and transportation more energy efficient and scaling up the use of uh, renewable energy. Anyway, interesting conversation with David. First thing this morning, 
Uh, that's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to uh, head on down the hall to the living room. But I'll be back tomorrow at 9 with another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.